0: There's a spirit at Brian Health, a passion that says we can make it better, stronger, to raise our kids, to build our future, to move forward together. It's time for another Brian Health podcast. Here's Melanie Cole. Clostridium difficile or C. diff as it's known is an infection that can be associated with the use of antibiotics. My guest today is Dr. William Lawton. He's a gastroenterologist with gastroenterology specialties. Dr. Lawton, what is C. diff? People have heard this term and they don't know what it is.
1: Well, thanks for having me. C. diff is a very common bacteria that we're encountering clinical medicine just more and more often. In the United States right now, it's pretty much the most common form of what we call nosocomial diarrhea. It means the type of diarrhea that people encounter in healthcare. So a hospitalized and even some clinic patients who have profound diarrhea, we're now finding that Clostridium difficile is uh, the most common cause. And the reason why this is becoming so difficult is that, well, first of all, the, the bacteria is difficult because it forms spores. And these spores live on in the environment. It's it's resistant to the alcohol gel that we traditionally use in healthcare facilities, keep our hands clean. So you have to use soap and water. And we do our best with that. But however, you can imagine when a patient is sick with this, a hospital setting or a clinic setting, these spores can exist in the environment. It can exist on the surface of things. And so oftentimes things remain in the hospital setting and the clinic setting. And so what a person who has other illness comes in, is exposed to this, and then is exposed to antibiotics, which are so common in the United States uh, just because of uh, how uh, common uh, they are prescribed, then obviously the person can get these uh, spores and then develop C. diff. It's such a problem because people can have a variety of severity of the disease. It can be a very mild problem with diarrhea, but it can also progress to so a person can become quite toxic with this and even in 2018, we still pe- still see people who die from C. diff because they become toxic as a result of this infection. We do our very, very best to prevent the transmission uh, and also to uh, treat this. However, we're also seeing rises in the incidents where the Clostridium difficile is now less responsive to the traditional therapies we have for it. For instance, uh, oral antibiotics. Ironically, we give people an- antibiotics to treat this infection, although antibiotics may have caused it. Uh, but the traditional antibiotics that we give, either flagell or vancomycin, sometimes aren't as effective. And we're now also identifying strains of C. diff that are more apt to recur or become uh, recurrent in a patient where they have one, two, three bouts of this infection. And then as a result, we could become quite desperate looking for other ways to treat them. So in our world, it's a very, very common problem, and we uh, are doing our best to combat it. Um, However, it's still uh, a big problem for our uh, sick patients.
0: So if somebody has C. diff and they are living at home, they're not in inpatient, are there certain Mm -hmm. precautions that the rest of the family should take? Sheets and hand washing, counters, surfaces? What do you want the families to know?
1: That's a very good question. Really, I tell them they have to just practice very good hand hygiene. We don't know why. Uh, people who have been exposed to C. diff then get sick from C. diff. In fact, some of us are colonized. There are some people who have clostridium difficile in their colon. They can be exposed to C. diff, and they never get sick, like somebody who may be a bit older or somebody who has other comorbid problems like kidney disease or cirrhosis or who have been on immunosuppression if they're taking cancer medicines. The key to this is that the person who gets C. diff usually has a reason and uh, we've identified several factors as to why. And it's uh, the things that are uh, seemingly intuitive. You are generally, people are generally older. They have other problems. They're immunosuppressed. And what we've really identified is that their microbiome, the bacteria that lives within their intestine, has been altered. And has either been altered because of their age, their other medical conditions, or the antibiotics that they've received. And so the healthy person who's living with uh, someone in their in house their May never get C. Diff, even though they've been exposed to it. They've got someone with these spores that are that are floating around in their environment. So I really tell them they just have to be really cautious with hand washing, hand hygiene, you know, wiping the surface down with more of a, a Clorox bleach type thing. Don't rely on uh, on Purell, but you also can't live in a bubble. You know, a lot of these things require professionally uh, professional cleaning services in the hospital, for instance, to get them completely clean. But most people, in fact, if you're healthy you, and you're exposed to C. diff, you tend not to get C. diff. But it's it's hard to have that discussion with people at home because oftentimes the older sick patient is living with another older sick patient. And so oftentimes it's impossible to prevent, but we uh, we really just emphasize Hand hygiene and also just being real smart about your antibiotic use—that's that's the real key.
0: You mentioned you know gut flora, and you're a gastroenterologist. Would probiotics for the healthy person, or maybe even the immunocompromised person, would that help possibly prevent this from happening in the first place, or not so much?
1: Now, that's a great question. We actually don't really know the answer to it. Uh, there's been lots of studies about probiotics with C. diff. At one point, we used to think one particular probiotic would potentially help people who had recurrent C. diff, but the data is actually fairly weak. We will still ask people to go on a probiotic uh, if they've had recurrent C. diff, only because we do get desperate. and We say, well, if it's not going to hurt, let's give it a shot. But if a person is looking for a probiotic that they can take that is the specific intent is to prevent Clostridium difficile, we don't think there's one available right now. There are probiotics to take if you're taking antibiotics, for instance, and you get a very common complication of the, or a common side effect of antibiotics, which is diarrhea. Most of us who take antibiotics get diarrhea, which is not C. diff. If you take probiotics while you're taking your antibiotic, you may have less diarrhea, but it doesn't prevent C. diff. It's very complicated and gray, but the short story is, well, no, I don't think there is a a probiotic that will prevent C. diff per se. Maybe some, some literature and data in terms of prevention of recurrent C. diff, but even that is unfortunately weak at best.
0: So if someone has repeat C. diff infections, and as you've said, it's a little difficult to treat, and antibiotics certainly don't always work, then people have heard about fecal transplants, and they kind of wince a little because they're not sure what that is. So tell us what that is and how it can help.
1: Yeah, fecal transplants actually become very, very popular recently, and a lot of this is because of a study that came out in the New England Journal, I think 2012, 2013, And what they did was compare people who received traditional antibiotics versus those who received stool from a healthy donor. And they actually stopped the study early because those who were receiving stool from a healthy donor got better that much faster. And through some other additional portions of that study, they were able to actually measure the diversity of their flora in their gut. And we found that if we improve the microbiome of the sick person, they got all better and their C. diff got all better. And so fecal transplant became uh, sort of popular again, although it's been around a long, long time. I mean, it dates all the way back to the fourth century China and has been going on in veterinary medicine since the early 1800s. If a cow gets sick, for instance, and has diarrhea, it was very common for a veterinarian to pick up A stool from uh, another cow and put it in the cow's mouth, and that cow would get better. Uh, That was called transplantation, and it's very, very common with horses and cattle. Um, In the United States, the first known case of a transplantation uh, was done in the early or the late 1950s, uh, where some residents on a medical service were asked to donate stool to a very sick patient, and that patient who had an infectious diarrhea received an enema with the healthy stool from one of the residents and that patient got all better. Uh, This became very, very, uh, well, it became a a development out of need as C. diffs become more uh, prevalent. And so in the 90s, it became more common. In early 2000, it became very, very common. And then even in the uh, early 2010, I recall as a fellow, I was telling my patients to perform self-administered enemas only because we didn't have protocols for this. Now, it's become much more accepted in terms of being able to provide this for our patients. Again, there is a yuck factor. Uh, patients do uh, look at me and say, you want to do what? Uh, this, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, It's initially a, a, a bit taken aback. But as I explained to them, that the key to getting them better is to getting their bacterial balance back to normal. And we don't know what Normal is we have a very good idea, but everyone's intestinal flora is so dramatically diverse and different from everyone else's that it's impossible, probably, to restore a person A back to person A. Oftentimes, we need to give person B to person A and make their stool more normal by providing them with a uh, what is what we think is normal in a normal and an otherwise healthy person, and. In fact, it's quite easy to do. The word transplant, I think, is an overstatement. It's not like we're performing a liver transplant here. We, here in Nebraska, will routinely do this with a uh, colonoscopy. First of all, we uh, ask the patient to potentially identify a donor. There are exclusions in terms of who their donor needs to be. The donor needs to be very, very healthy. We also have access to a stool bank, uh, which is a facility where the donor has been pre-screened and we know the donor is very, very healthy. Most of my patients tend to go with the stool bank just because it eliminates them from having to ask a friend or a relative to donate stool. We bring them in for a colonoscopy and during their colonoscopy on will infuse about 200 cc's or about a pop can's worth of liquid stool My patients never see the stool. They never smell the stool. It's in a very thin liquid form that I infuse through the colonoscope. It takes literally 10 or 15 minutes or however long the colonoscopy would take. I put it all in over all the way on the right side of the colon and sometimes into the small bowel. And then I pull the scope out all the while uh, removing the air, trying to take away any sense of bloat or discomfort for the patient. And after that, they just recover from the colonoscopy. We do give them some anti-diarrheal agents before their colonoscopy so that they hold the stool in a bit longer than a traditional uh, colonoscopy patient. And I routinely will get phone calls 24 or 48 hours after the procedure, and the patient will tell me they feel nearly 100% better. Wow. For people who are having between 10 and 30 stools per day, I've had patients who then wake up and 48 hours later have a single well-formed stool. Uh, Its effects are very, very fast. And, and quite dramatic, actually. They, for a person to need a fecal transplant, they have to have had failed uh, two rounds of antibiotics. And so by that time, the patients are desperate. And so while they're on antibiotics, still having 10 or 20 loose stools per day, and then we do the fecal transplant, and then they immediately nearly almost always get better. More than 90% will get better. They call and say, gosh, I wish I had done this right off the bat. So it's, it's very, very effective and we're reaching for it more and more frequently only because of how common this has become.
0: Wow, that is dramatic, and what an excellent explanation. Dr. Lawton, wrap it up for us with your C. diff information, what you want listeners to know about possible prevention or immunocompromised people, and just what you want them to know.
1: My statement about C. diff is truly it's antibiotic stewardship. It's when you are at your doctor's, And you have a cough, a cold, a sniffle. If you're at your dentist and you need a tooth pulled, and they say, "Here are some antibiotics," it's not being argumentative with your provider, but it's truly saying, "Do I really need this? And is this truly something that is something that is absolutely necessary?" And frequently, the answer is absolutely yes; it is necessary. But and sometimes they say, "Well, we can wait and see how you do, and if you get better." a lot of the times, people, it's a virus or something like that, then do your best to avoid antibiotics if possible. However, you should still take antibiotics if you need them. Do not allow an illness to, or do not allow C. diff to scare you from taking antibiotics because quite frankly, most people who take them don't get C. diff. But we still need to be very smart with how we provide antibiotics for our patients and patients need to be smart about when to take them. And so it, it's a good relationship with your primary doctors, a good relationship with the caregivers, and just being real cautious.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Lawton. What a great guest you are. And a special thank you to our podcast partner, Inpatient Physician Associates. If you'd like more information about GI disorders, please visit brianhealth.org. That's brianhealth.org. This is Brian Health Podcast. I'm Melanie Cole. Thanks for tuning in.